Hi, this is Peter Schiff. Welcome to another live episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. This is the last podcast that I'm going to be doing for a while from my Puerto Rico studio. Tomorrow, we leave uh, for Connecticut. We're going to be away from Puerto Rico till mid-August. So going forward, I'm probably going to be doing these podcasts from my laptop. You know, I'm going to be in Connecticut about half the time. The other half of the summer, I will be in Europe back and forth on a couple of trips. Normally, if I was in Connecticut, I would be doing a podcast from my studio, but my studio there is out of commission. They were doing some work uh, in that room. I had a leak and they finally got around to, to fixing it. It was a big job, but I had to take away all the electronic uh, equipment out of that room so they can affect those repairs. So I'm just going to have my laptop uh, going forward. So it, it won't be uh, as good a quality, but I'm still going to put out the same quality of information. I mean, technically, I am going to be on vacation. And so about the only thing that I'm going to do while I'm away is just do these podcasts. So, so that's pretty much going to be it. The rest of the time, I will be on uh, on vacation. I will be doing the Q&A still. I'm going to do one today immediately following this live podcast. If you're a premium member at Locals, go to Shift Radio Premium. Uh, if you're not already there and sign up, if you want to take part in this evening's Q&A, want to start out today's podcast by talking a bit about the markets because today was yet another day in a string of 52-week highs for the NASDAQ. Not a record high, but a new high for the year. And it seems relentless because it doesn't really matter what happens to the overall market. The Dow is down about 140 points, I think about a third of a percent today. Uh, but, or I don't know, whatever what the, the percentage was, but uh, the NASDAQ just continues to go up and it's really being led higher by the big tech, Microsoft, Facebook, Nvidia, Google, or Alphabet, rather. These stocks are the leaders making 52-week highs. And I'm sure there were a lot of people that were short these stocks. I mean, after all, they got beat up pretty hard in 2022, right? The NASDAQ got crushed down, you know, 30%, whatever it was, led lower by these stocks. And so probably a lot of people were short these stocks, and they're, they're covering. And that's, you know, contributing to the buying, but to really kind of put this divergence in its perspective, just before I started this podcast, I was taking a look at the numbers and going back to January of this year, if you look at where the NASDAQ peaked at January, the NASDAQ is 20% higher right now than its peak in January. And you contrast that to the Dow which is only about 3% higher than its January peak. So we're I mean, not quite halfway through the year, but the Dow has made very little progress versus an entire bull market in the NASDAQ up 20%. And again, the, 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 it's very narrow because most of these NASDAQ stocks aren't doing this. You know, it's just the really big companies. And again, they have some type of, uh, you know, um, AI uh, 
theme going to them, which is part of what is, I think, driving the speculative flows into these names. But also, if you even look at compared to where everything was in March 17th, if you look at the high, the NASDAQ is up another 10.5% just since that time period. But if you look at less speculative names, like look at the ARK uh, Innovation ETF, which is had, had been, you know, positively correlated to the NASDAQ in a bigger way. So if the NASDAQ was up 10, you might have expected an ETF like that to be up 20. Instead, it was up just 5% during that same time period. So again, this shows you that everything is concentrated in big tech. And by the way, Bitcoin is not going along with the tech ride. Since March 17th, about that time, where the NASDAQ is up better than 10%, Bitcoin is flat. Bitcoin hasn't gained at all. In fact, it's lagging behind the ARK ETF. There used to be a very strong correlation between Bitcoin and the ARK you know, innovation ETF, and that is broken down. I mean, Bitcoin isn't correlated to any tech anymore because it's just kind of flat line as all this tech is going up. Now, I know a lot of people in the Bitcoin community are saying, well, that's because it's now correlated with gold. Right, because gold has kind of been flat uh, for the past couple of months. In fact, gold is only about 1% above its January peak. Uh, and by the way, to show you where the sentiment is, the GDX, gold stocks, today closed 4% below the January peak. And the juniors, the GDXJ, they're 8% below their January peak. So even though gold has gone up a percent, a 1% higher, then it's high water mark in January. The junior gold mining stocks are 8% down from where they were when gold was 1% lower. So that shows you uh, the investors' uh, mentality. In fact, investors are selling gold stocks, or they probably don't even own them, so they can't really sell them. Maybe they're shorting them, uh, and they're buying tech stocks. But, but why are they doing this? What is the driving force behind this? And in fact, before I get into it, though, just to make one point, on Bitcoin before I move away from this topic. I think the fact that Bitcoin is no longer moving up with these spec names, that is a bad sign. It is not a good sign that, well, now finally it's digital gold and it's correlated to gold. I don't necessarily know that that logic is going to, is going to flow. What may in fact happen is that when gold finally breaks out of this range, and gold stocks break out, maybe Bitcoin won't follow gold either. And if, if it's not going to follow tech higher, and it's not going to follow gold higher, then what's it going to do? Well, it's just going to drop. Because I know it's not digital gold. It was reinvented as some type of high, high, highly volatile, you know, uh, correlated asset to risk on. Uh, but if it's, it's no longer correlated to tech, and if it's not correlated to gold, then it's correlated to nothing, and it's just going to go down because there is no reason to buy it. But anyway, so what I think is driving the move into tech, apart from AI, which is just part of the theme, is the belief that the Fed is either done hiking or close enough to being done that the traders can now see the whites of the eyes of the first rate cut. And that's what the markets are doing. They are looking beyond the rate hike. Whether we have a rate hike 
uh, in, in, in June or not, and whether or not there's another quarter point hike. I mean, either we've topped out now at five to five and a quarter, or maybe the markets think another 50 basis points max, 25 basis points maybe, and then that's it. So we're 90% of the way done with the tightening. And there's just this little bit left before we get relief, before we get more of the drug uh, in form of rate cuts or expanded QE. And the tech stocks, the tech investors are anticipating that the next round of monetary easing will be just as good for tech as QE1 or QE2, 3, or 4. Everybody expects more of the same. And one of the reasons is because they expect the inflation rate to come way down. And so they expect us to return to the same Goldilocks environment that the tech stocks were operating under for the past decade or more, which is an accommodating Fed with cheap money, low interest rates, all in an environment where inflation is perceived to be below 2%. That is the sweet spot. That's what these high multiple stocks need to justify the valuations and to continue the, the flows that are necessary to keep these stocks going up. Because it's not the earnings that are going to power them. It's not the dividends that are going to power them. It's going to be the momentum of money chasing them, which is a byproduct of the monetary policy. Well, I think they're wrong. I think that they're right in sensing that the Fed is getting close to the end of this cycle. Although they're wrong in their belief that the Fed is going to be able to complete another easing cycle. See, I think that even if we peak at five to five and a half, that after the Fed starts cutting, they're not getting down to zero. They're not even getting to one. They probably won't even get to two because at some point, inflation is going to be running so hot that they're going to have to do an about face. They're going to have to start hiking rates. And that's what the markets are getting wrong. That's what the bond market is getting wrong. They're right about sensing the recession, but they're wrong in assuming that recession means a return to 2% inflation. It doesn't. The next recession is actually going to be a catalyst for a dollar crisis and a resurgent in consumer prices. So inflation, as measured by the CPI, is going to be headed higher as the economy and markets are going are headed lower. And that is the outcome for which nobody is prepared, including the Federal Reserve. And I'm going to talk about that on the other side of this break, because I want to talk about the uh, talk that was given by Powell and Bernanke, who both uh, spoke on a, on a panel uh, with a moderator on Friday. And so it kind of, to me, was like, you know, an ignorance parade. And I want to report on, on some of the economic and monetary ignorance that was basically on display by the former and current chair of the Federal Reserve. So stick around. We'll be right back. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. All right. Well, before I talk about what the current Fed Chair Powell had to say at this uh, you know, joint uh, talk, I'm not really sure what it was. I mean, it wasn't a debate, obviously, because 
uh, Powell and Bernanke would have nothing to debate, you know, because they're both wrong about everything. So there's there's no point in, in arguing. Uh, but they, they kind of took turns fielding questions from this moderator who obviously had a lot of respect for these two guys, because after all, he thinks they're you know giants in their field that nobody could possibly know more about economics than uh, Powell and Bernanke, because they think that if you get that job, right, if you get given the most powerful job in the world that affects the economy, that somehow you must be the, the, the world's best economist, that like, that's why you get the job. Like, if you're so smart, you really know exactly what needs to be done to micromanage the economy, right? You're just brilliant. And the rest of us just kind of like sit back in awe and just wait for you to tell us, you know, what's going to happen and what needs to be done, right? Of course, this is all a bunch of BS. These guys don't know anything uh, about economics. I mean, they just had connections, uh, but they also tow the establishment line, right? That they have these jobs because they, they will espouse what the people who are appointing them want them to, right? They're going to ex extol the virtues of government and government spending and central banking, and they're going to completely lie when it comes to inflation. Either they don't understand inflation or they're prepared to lie about it. Because if you actually understand inflation and you're gonna tell the truth about it, you don't have a prayer of being Fed chairman. I mean, forget about Fed, you're not gonna get anywhere near the FOMC. If you know, you know Donald Trump talked about maybe having Judy Shelton up there, that didn't fly. I mean, she never got anywhere near there. Even Stephen Moore, right? They were considering that guy. Uh, and, and he, no, 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 I mean, no, anybody that has even, uh, let let the, that cat out of the bag. Like, I don't think um, um, Alan Greenspan could get appointed to the Fed today because based on what he believed, because when you look back, when he was appointed to the Federal Reserve, uh, when, uh, when Reagan was president, because right? he came in in 1987. And so Ronald Reagan appointed him. And that's because Ronald Reagan, you know, was a fan of Ayn Rand. And so was he. He was like her protege, right? So this was a gold bug. Imagine that. How the hell did a gold bug get on the FMOC, let alone to become the chair? See, the problem is once he became Fed chair, he for, you know he just basically abandoned everything that he believed when he was younger. I mean, he obviously still believed it. That's one of the reasons that you know, I still am most critical of, of Greenspan because he knew what he was doing was wrong and he did it anyway. Everybody that followed him, Yellen, Bernanke, Powell, I don't know if these guys know anything, right? They, they could just be ignorant, but Greenspan was not. Greenspan was a very smart guy. In fact, some of what I know, I know because I, I read Greenspan when I was young. Uh, and and you, you don't go from having that much knowledge to being completely ignorant. Normally you go the other way, right? You start out dumb and you get smarter. You don't start out really smart and get real dumb, right? So he was just lying a lot as, uh, as Fed chairman, but nobody with Greenspan's background today is gonna get anywhere near the, the Federal Reserve. But anyway, so I'm listening to these guys and I wanna start off with some of the Bernanke uh, comments. And, uh, then I'm going to move on uh, to to the big guy, uh, and not not Biden, the other big guy, uh, Powell. But anyway, so one of the things that Biden, that Bernanke, excuse me, said that I thought was interesting, is he was asked about 
you know, why didn't the Fed model, I think, you know, the stuff that happened, uh, you know, with, you know, this banking crisis. And what Bernanke said is, well, this is just not something that we would have expected because he said, normally, if a bank owns treasuries, you know, stuff like that, low risk assets, government guaranteed stuff, right? Government guaranteed mortgages. If the economy gets weak, normally you would expect those assets to gain in value. And so we didn't expect this. We didn't expect a situation where the economy got weak and assets that you would expect to increase in value when the economy was weak went down in value. See, this is an outcome that we didn't really model because we just you know, didn't expect it. It came out of left field. But of course, this is the exact situation that I've been warning about for years because what these central bankers missed was stagflation. They don't understand that when there's inflation, that is going to put downward pressure on treasuries. Right? It's not about the credit quality. It's about the present value of the income streams and the principal being eroded due to inflation. And of course, as the Fed is hiking rates in order to fight inflation, that is putting downward pressure on the value of these lower yielding longer term instruments. So this is something that those you know ignorant fools at the FOMC were oblivious to because they didn't understand economics. And they still don't understand it because they're still kind of perplexed that this happened, even though this was the obvious consequence of a policy that the people implementing didn't even understand. Now, another thing that uh, Bernanke talked about was why we had high inflation in the 1970s, right? And he said that was due to two things. One was a supply shock coming from oil. And the other thing was those pesky consumers and their expectations that they kept expecting uh, rising prices. And so that got built in to everybody's psyche and became a self-perpetuating process where the expectation of inflation led to price hikes and workers to demand wages, and it's all spiraled, right? So nowhere in his explanation for the inflation of the 1970s was the Fed, right? All the money they printed during the 1960s, uh, the Great Society, the War on Poverty, the Vietnam War, the deficit spending, the guns and butter, uh, you know, going off the gold standard 1971, nothing about that. So the government had nothing to blame, wasn't because of big deficits, it wasn't because of easy money, it was because oil prices went up and people just expected inflation. Well, the reason oil prices went up was because they printed so much money, because they went off the gold standard. The reason people expected inflation is because they weren't idiots. They knew there was inflation. They could see it. And so they obviously expected uh, you know, what was clearly coming. We had high inflation, and it was going to continue. Those expectations and those price shocks were the result of the Fed policy. Right? But if Bernanke doesn't understand that, if he doesn't know why we had inflation during the 1970s, then why the hell would he know why we have inflation now? In fact, if he didn't understand why we have inflation had inflation in the 70s, why was he even 
the chairman of the Federal Reserve? Well, you already know the answer. It's because he doesn't understand inflation that he became chairman of the, the Federal Reserve, because if he knew why we had inflation in the 1970s, he never would have been appointed. He wouldn't have been vice chair. He wouldn't have had a seat at that table if he understood where inflation came from. Then um, he also complained right, about how hard it is for the Fed to make policy based on numbers that are so frequently revised. So so that was very frustrating. You know, we'd get a number, whatever it is, CPI, GDP, some kind of number would come out, employment, and then we would make policy off of that number. And then the following month, they would completely revise it to some other number. And, you know, what I'm thinking is they shouldn't even be making policy off of a number. I mean, what difference does a number make? One loan number. Uh, And now you're going to be upset if the number gets revised when you know that all of these numbers have a history of getting revised. And if they don't get revised immediately, like the next time, sometimes they go back six months or a year later and they revise everything. These numbers don't mean anything. They shouldn't need these numbers to make policy. They should be able to understand the bigger picture and the implications of what they're doing. So when you're flooding the economy with money, And when you have 0% interest rates and your balance sheet has exploded, you don't need to look at the numbers to know that you've got an inflation problem, right? By the time that inflation problem shows up in these numbers, it's way too late to do anything about it. The problem is we don't have, uh, you know, FOMC members or chairs that know enough about economics not to need these stupid numbers to be able to understand the broader implications of what they're doing. But again, as I said, if they understood the broader implications of what they were doing, they wouldn't have those jobs (laughs) because they don't have their jobs because they're smart. They may have those jobs because they're dumb. I mean, they're not dumb in in an intellectual. I mean, I'm sure if Bernanke or Powell, maybe, I don't don't know about Powell, but I mean, but Bernanke, I think, if you gave him an IQ test, I think he's pretty smart. I think think he's got a higher IQ than I do. And, uh, you know, I don't know about Yellen, but I mean, who knows? So it's not just about raw intelligence. It's just understanding economics because you can be really smart. And and look, Albert Einstein was a genius, but I think he was a, a, a Democrat. I mean, he wasn't smart enough to understand that these social programs don't work because I don't think he actually spent any of his time thinking about it. He had he had more important things to think about. And so when it came to politics, he just you know, he just used his heart. He didn't use his magnificent brain to try to focus on economics. He he, he had more important things to think about. And, and so, you know, you could be smart intellectually, right? I mean, Karl Marx was probably a pretty smart guy, right, to come up with Marxism, but it was an asinine theory. But I mean, you have to be pretty smart to come up with it, right? You can't be a complete idiot. Uh, but the people who don't understand economics they're the, they're the people on, on, on the Federal Reserve. But anyway, the epitome of a lack of understanding of economics and, and money and inflation is the current head of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell. And I'm going to talk about what Chair Powell had to say uh, at this uh, event on the other side of this break. So stick around. We'll be right back. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, we are back. I want to start off by reading uh, some quotes from Powell. This got kind of a lot of press, and it caused people to think that maybe the Fed is pausing. Because remember, on my last podcast that I recorded on Thursday, that was the day before uh, Powell and, and, and Bernanke spoke. But on that podcast, I talked about how three Fed officials had come out that day, and they really talked tough about why we need more rate hikes and why we're going to hike in June, that we can't pause because inflation is still a big problem. And so the markets didn't like that and reacted. Gold, you know, gold got hit and everything. Well, gold rallied, I think, 20 bucks uh, on, on Friday because of what Powell said, because now all of a sudden Powell put the pause back in play. That is the June pause for this upcoming meeting. Upcoming meeting. But so here's what he said. Quote, the financial stability tools help to calm conditions in the banking sector. Developments there, on the other hand, are contributing to tighter credit conditions and are likely to weigh on economic growth, hiring, and inflation. So Powell thinks that these tighter credit conditions are going to push down economic growth and inflation and hiring because he thinks inflation is a byproduct of hiring and economic growth. He's wrong. See, he thinks tighter credit is going to hurt the economy, which is going to, uh, you know, put downward pressure on inflation. It's not. It's actually going to put upward pressure on inflation. He just doesn't understand that. Let me finish the quote. So as a result of our policy, uh, no, so as a result, our policy rate may not need to rise as much as it would otherwise have had to to achieve our goals, right? So in other words, Powell said, wait a minute, because of these tightening credit conditions that just happened because of the banking crisis, and the effect that these tighter credit conditions are going to have on employment, the economy, and inflation, we may not have to raise as much as we thought. So in other words, we can pause, right? This is what uh, people were reading into those remarks, and you know, it makes sense based on what he said. Then he continued. He wrote, he said, we've come a long way in policy tightening, and the stance of policy is restrictive, and we face uncertainty about the lagged effects of our tightening so far and about the extent of credit tightening from recent, recent bank stress. So he's saying, hey, we've come a long way and our current policy is tight. So according to Powell, 5% Fed funds, five to five and a quarter is tight. It ain't tight. It's still easy. It's just less loose than it was. But it's not tight because inflation, even the way the government measures it, is 5%. So you're talking about 5% inflation, 5% rates, 0% real. You're not restricted. Remember, when interest rates were 20% in 1981 under, under Volcker, 
inflation got no higher than 13 and a half. And that was a much more honest 13 and a half. In fact, if you measured inflation in 1981, the way we measure it today, inflation was probably six or seven, right? And interest rates were 20. So you had interest rates that were likely triple the actual inflation rate. You know, so today to get to where we were back then, the Fed would have to take interest rates up to 15%, right? To be at the same level. If you believe the 5%, we're not even close, right? So we don't have tight money, but according to Powell, we do. Then he said, having come this far, we can afford to look at the data and the evolving outlook to make careful assessments. See, that implies they're going to pause to look at the data, right? Because you can't keep looking at the data if you're zooming by, you know, with rate hikes. So all of that suggests a pause, right? That And that's what happened on Friday. Of course, on Monday, you had a couple of Fed guys, including Bullard, throw cold water on that pause because Bullard came out today and he said that he thinks we need at least two more rate hikes and that that would be appropriate because of the robust economic growth and the persistently high inflation. Well, he's right about inflation being persistently high, but there is no robust economic growth. I don't even know what he's talking about when he talks about robust economic growth. Where is he seeing that? I mean, that's not even in the government numbers. The only thing you can point to is the low unemployment rate, right? That we have, but that number is meaningless because there's so many unemployed people who don't count and so many people who have multiple jobs now because inflation is so high and they've lost their good job. They've had to replace it with two or three bad jobs. So you've got all these jobs being created for people that would rather not have them. They, they, they prefer the good job they lost to the three tra- crappy jobs they got now. Uh, but so these numbers don't really tell the story of a strong economy. But again, Bullard thinks, oh, we got a strong economy. That means we have to cool it down. But even if he's right and we have two more rate hikes, that's really not that much. If you're at five and we're going to five and a half, right? I mean, that's not that big a deal. And then, of course, the rate cuts. Because as soon as the Fed stops hiking, we all know that everybody expects the next move to be a cut because that's what we do. We have these cycles. The Fed keeps hiking until something breaks and something already broke. And then at some point it gets broken bad enough that they have to fix it with a rate cut. Of course, the rate cut doesn't fix it, but that's what they do. It ultimately makes the problem they broke even worse. But the markets, you know, they don't give a damn about that. They just know uh, how how this movie uh, you know plays out because they've seen it many, many times before. And so they are getting ahead of it and they're doing it by buying tech stocks. Now, if they really understood how the movie's gonna end this time, they would be buying gold stocks instead of tech stocks. Anyway, let me get into some of the other gems that uh, uh, Powell was uh, uh, casting out there uh, during this thing. So again, Powell said, and this is one, one point that he actually got right in a way, so I'll give him credit for that. And it's an ominous forecast that people missed. But he said that a reason that we had low inflation in the past was because the global supply chain helped to lower costs, right? Because we were importing so much stuff from China and over other places, and those imports were lower, that that helped to contribute to lower consumer prices. And that he thinks that those days 
are gone and they're not coming back. And so we're not going to get the help that we had in the past from the global supply chain. And he is correct to a point. The global supply chain, right? The ability to import cheap stuff from China, that didn't keep inflation low. That kept prices low because the inflation uh, was there. The government kept creating it by expanding the money supply. What cheap imports from China did is help disguise that inflation because we couldn't see it because the Chinese and everybody else were helping to lower prices even as the Federal Reserve was creating inflation. Now, obviously, let's say that prices went up by 2%, even though they printed all this money because of all the cheap stuff that we were importing from China and other places. Well, what if the Fed didn't print all this money, but we still imported all that cheap stuff from China? Maybe instead of prices going up 2%, they would have dropped by 5%. So in other words, instead of getting 5% reduction in prices, we got a 2% increase. That's 7%, right? As far as I'm concerned, prices are 7% higher approximately than they would have been because of inflation. Now, of course, uh, Powell would have to say, well, that would have been a disaster. I mean, if prices went down by 5%, all hell would have broken loose. It would have been another Great Depression. But of course, that's all BS <laughs> because if prices would have gone down by 5%, it would have been great. It would have meant that people have more money to buy other things, to buy more stuff. Aggregate spending would go up if prices went down. It's the reverse of what's happening now. Prices are going up so much for like food and energy and rent that consumers don't have anything left over to buy other stuff. So real sales are falling. What if prices went down for so many things, right? That, that would have just freed up a lot of purchasing power. So it's BS that we would have suffered if the cost of living went down and thank God it went up. But also it, 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 it means that yes, the Chinese were able to disguise this inflation. That's how we got away with it. Right? We got away with creating all this inflation because of all the cheap imports uh, that disguised the price increase. Now, people didn't realize that they would have got a big break, that they would have had a big cut in prices if it wasn't for all that inflation. See, because you, you, you don't realize the benefit that you would have had. So when you see prices go up 2%, you're like, oh, that's good. It's good they didn't go up 4 or 5%. You don't realize that the government didn't create that inflation. You would have been able to buy everything for 5% less. So you don't know that. So you can't be upset because you lost something that you never had and you never expected. So yes, it created all this political cover. But what Powell is admitting is that that cover's not there anymore. So now when the Fed creates inflation, we're all going to know it. We're all going to see it because it's not going to be disguised by these global supply chains. Now, at least Powell gets that, right? I don't know how many other people got that point that he was making, but it is significant and you have to understand it because if you do, then you understand that the Fed is never gonna succeed in its goal of getting inflation back down to 2%. Now, I wonder if Powell knows that because he certainly pretends that he's gonna do that, but understanding that point might suggest that he knows that, 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 that he's full of it. Okay, now, he also blamed the current high inflation on 
supply shocks and the tight labor market. That was pretty much it. I think he was asked about, you know, why we have inflation. And that was it, right? So just like Bernanke was wrong about why we had inflation in the 70s, Powell was wrong about why we have inflation right now, right? He didn't admit that it was Fed policy. He didn't go back to QE1. You know, he's got, you know, uh, Bernanke sitting right next to him. He could have said, you know why we have so much inflation? Because of the guy sitting next to me. That's why. Right? He, he created all the inflation, uh, you know, long before I, I got here, right? And we're just dealing with the consequences. No, he's not blaming uh, Bernanke, and he's not accepting any responsibility himself for all the money that he printed while he was there. I mean, he was still printing money, had rates at zero a year ago, just over a year ago, you know, when it was clear consumer prices were soaring. And this guy was still buying uh, treasuries and buying mortgages, and he had interest rates at zero. So no, no, this inflation is not the fault of the Fed. It's not the fault of the U.S. government for running these huge deficits. It's all because of these pesky supply chain bottlenecks and the tight labor market, right? That's it, right? That, you know, always pointing fingers, never accepting responsibility. Now, another thing Powell pointed out, he says that he felt that he had a special uh, obligation, you know, at the Fed to be transparent because uh, he wanted trust. He wanted the country and the public to trust the Fed. And that's why it was so important that the Fed be transparent. And in, uh, for the sake of transparency, that's why they're doing these press conferences now after every single FOMC meeting so that they can be transparent so that the public will trust them. Well, their, their transparency is just lying. That's all they do. They, they're, they're actually very opaque, right? Because they're covering up what they're doing in a cloud of lies. So if you're going to redefine that as being transparent, I don't think they're transparent at all from the perspective of that they're not honest. They don't tell the truth. They're trying to misdirect people and blame uh, the private sector for the problems that they have created. Uh, Powell also talked about forward guidance, uh, praise forward guidance. You know, I think I think Bernanke might have talked about that, too, but being a, a, an effective tool. And I think the forward guidance was part of the problem, you know, especially when uh, Bernanke was Fed chair during the housing bubble. I think the fact that the Fed had told the markets that rates are going to go up a quarter point at a time. And they had, you know, however many, 16, whatever, 17 rate hikes, quarter point every meeting. That created some certainty that rates would be low for a long period of time. And that's what helped fuel the housing bubble. The housing bubble was bigger than it otherwise would have been due to the transparency of the Fed. If the Fed was less transparent, if borrowers really were in the dark and they weren't sure, like, how long rates would stay low and, and how quickly the Fed might raise them, they might have been a little bit more cautious with respect to their willingness to take on a lot of debt. But because they were pretty much assured of this steady, slow path, that's what you know encouraged them to take on all this debt. And that's what caused credit standards to, to be lowered. And of course, the, the problems uh, ensued. Now, here was a particular funny point. Um, Powell was, you know, trying to talk about, you know, what the Fed has learned uh, and how they're trying to evolve their understanding 
of, of inflation. And he said he's trying to figure out right now, he, he's still kind of in the dark, but he's trying to figure out how inflation moved from goods to services, right? He's not really sure how that transition happened. Like he understands like the fact that there was a problem with goods because, you know, the supply chain bottlenecks, but he's really not sure how it moved into services. Now he kind of acknowledged that maybe the support that fiscal and monetary policy gave to consumers was part of the reason for the increase in good prices, which of course it was the reason, right? It's not part of the reason, but he still doesn't understand how that had anything to do with services, which is like, of course, well, the money to buy services also came from the government. A lot of services are bought with government money, right? A lot of uh, services are purchased with borrowed money. Uh, so it's pretty obvious why we have an inflation problem. It's just obvious to everybody other than uh, the current and former chair people, uh, chairpersons of the FOMC. Anyway, let me move forward. I want to talk a little bit about Biden because he kind of threw down the gauntlet. He just gave a speech in, uh, I think it was Japan, uh, and he talked about uh, the debt ceiling. And no, we are not raising this debt ceiling. We're not agreeing to these Republican demands to cut spending. Uh, you know, we want to raise revenue. But I think it's interesting because he talks about how catastrophic the consequences will be if um, we don't, if we default, which he claims we will do if we don't raise the debt ceiling. And all the Republicans are saying is, hey, let's roll back spending to where they where it was a few months ago, like six months ago. Let's just do this. I mean, this is a minimal cut and it's not even a cut. But if that's all you have to do to avoid a catastrophe, then why not do it? That shows you how disingenuous Biden is being. And, and, and that's a nice word you know, to describe it. But again, if you take him at his word, it'll be economic Armageddon, a complete catastrophe, all hell's going to break loose if we don't raise the debt ceiling. And I'm not going to raise the debt ceiling because the Republicans want small cuts in government spending. Then Biden is saying that those small cuts in government spending are a bigger catastrophe than default because he has a choice, right? I can choose these little tiny cuts in government spending or this massive catastrophe from a default. And if he chooses the catastrophe of default, either it's not that big a catastrophe and he's lying, or he thinks these tiny cuts in government spending, right, rolling back to where we were like at the beginning of the year, <laughs> that that is a bigger catastrophe uh, than the one that he feels uh, is in store for us if we don't raise a death zone. And again, of course, all the government has to do is choose to prioritize interest on the debt, and then there's no default. The only way there's a default that is a consequence of failure to raise the debt ceiling is if the government decides not to pay the bills. It's got plenty of money to pay that interest. <laughs> so why would it choose, right? When you have Biden talk about how it would be so horrible if we defaulted on our debt, then don't do it. Just use the money. So he's actually saying what's worse than not paying the interest on the debt is not paying some of these other bills that we're going to prioritize because we're going to choose to default, even though we know that it's going to be complete disaster, which again, shows you that it's all lying. 
why would they choose to do something that's a complete disaster when they don't have to? Well, because they're not going to choose to do it, right? So again, it's all this theater uh, trying to uh, you know, get the Republicans to cave uh, so that they won't make these little teeny cuts uh, to government spending. And maybe they'll get some, some extra tax revenue. But I want to finish up, talk a little bit about politics, because you know, a couple of things have come out. First, I ha- didn't get a chance to talk much about that Durham report that came out that really, you know, not only exonerates Trump when it comes to this whole Russia collusion nonsense, but what's more important to me is not that, you know, Trump was innocent because I, I never felt he was guilty. But who is guilty is the media, the government, the FBI, right, for investigating it, because now we know, based on this Durham report, that there was no evidence to suggest that this was true. Yet they investigated these claims anyway, despite you know, no evidence that there was anything that, that there was to investigate. In contrast to the decisions regarding Hillary Clinton, because they will acknowledge that there was far more evidence that Hillary Clinton did something wrong than Donald Trump. Yet why wasn't Clinton investigated? Because it didn't fit the political agenda. Trump, right, was investigated because of politics, because of what he was associated with. He was a bad guy because he was a Republican or a conservative, even though I don't even regard him as a conservative. But, you know, the left thinks he is right. That's their definition of a conservative. And so he was a bad guy. And so therefore, the investigators either deliberately uh, did this out of politics or their judgment was just compromised that because of their own personal perspective, that clouded their judgment. And so they assume the worst out of Trump because they just assume he's a bad guy because he's a conservative. And they gave Clinton the benefit of the doubt because, you know, she's a good guy or gal, right? She's one of the good ones. She cares, right? She's, she's, a, she's a Democrat, so she's good. And so we'll cut her some slack, right? So there, it's a bias in the regulatory uh, body. And of course, these are all bureaucrats. These are all government people. So they're going to be biased. Uh, to like government because they they work for government, right? So they want to see themselves as the good guys, you know, working for this benevolent government. And so if somebody is critical of government, maybe a conservative libertarian, well, they're bad. And and this is further reinforced by what's going on with this FBI whistleblowers uh, hearings, if, if you've seen any of those, but you had these three guys that were fired for blowing the whistle, which you're not supposed to. I mean, there's all these laws to protect whistleblowers. Unless, of course, the person blowing the whistle is a conservative, blowing the whistle on some liberal, well, then you've got no protection whatsoever. You're just a tattletale. We got to fire you, right, for, for tattling, you know. But, you know, they're actually making it out like these whistleblowers are a bunch of traitors. <laughs> and in fact, what they were doing was standing up for the rights of Americans. Because if you're working for the government and you think that some of your uh, uh, associates, in your department at the FBI, if they are, you know, violating the rights of other Americans because they are, they're weaponizing their power, they're using their authority, the color of law, to go after and target people due to their politics, due to what they believe in. And, and, and this is the ultimate corruption of government, using government force to silence opposing political views. And so what was going on here 
is you had parents, right? Say they were opposed to masking up their kids during COVID, uh, or maybe they didn't want their kids exposed to a lot of this transgender stuff at a, at a young age uh, when they really shouldn't be exposed to anything related to sexuality. I mean, let them enjoy kindergarten, right? You don't have to, you know, hit them over the head with all this stuff. So you have some parents uh, that disagree, or also you had some stuff with January 6th, and all of a sudden the FBI is all over these guys, like, you know, you know, they're selling nuclear secrets uh, to, to, to the Russians during the Cold War. And like, you know, and you have some people in the FBI, like blowing the whistle on these other people that, hey, you are mistreating American citizens. You know, you are, uh, you know, using your power, right, to punish people for their beliefs, and you are unfairly persecuting American citizens, right? And so they're blowing the whistle, and instead of being rewarded, they're labeled traitors, and they're fired. Traitors to who? They're not traitors to the people. See, they're traitors to the government, right? If the government is corrupt, and you try to blow the whistle on that corruption, you're a hero to the public. But the government doesn't look at you as a hero. They look at you as, as a villain, as a traitor to what they're doing. But again, they think what they're doing is good, right? If they believe, right, that, 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 that they're uh, on the political high ground, right, they, they can't see uh, the, the, the ill effects, right? They, they, they don't see the, the adverse consequences. They just assume we're the good guys, and, and so it doesn't matter what individual rights are, individual liberties. It's the ends justifies the means as far as the left is concerned. So if somebody blows the whistle on due process, on the rule of law, on innocent until proven guilty, on all this, on abuse of power, if they're blowing the whistle on something that the left thinks is good, well, then, you know, you're not a whistleblower. Uh, you are a traitor and you're going to get fired. And, and that's what happened. Uh, in this circumstances. And that's what happened to me. You know, a lot of people, and I, on my last podcast, I talked a lot about, you know, what's going on with my defamation lawsuit in, in Australia. And there are people like, you know, who cares? We don't want to, a lot of people, you know, we don't, we don't care about this. This is a big thing because it ties into everything that we're seeing with the whistleblowers uh, or with the Durham report, only I've got firsthand knowledge of this. The rest of it, I'm, I'm learning just like everybody else. I'm, I'm watching the news. I'm reading stuff. But I live this. And so I can give everybody firsthand knowledge from my own experience about how I was persecuted by the government for my political beliefs that I expressed. Why did the IRS investigate my bank? Why did the Justice Department investigate my bank? There was no evidence that anybody at my bank did anything wrong. The only thing there was was me, my beliefs that I espouse on this podcast, that I espouse uh, in interviews that I do uh, on television, right, with the press. It was my beliefs that were the basis of the entire investigation, you know, what we, it's not an accident that they picked my bank. Look at all these other banks in Puerto Rico. Why didn't they investigate them? What about all these other banks all around the country? What about FTX? I mean, they weren't a bank, right? But they were in the Bahamas, right? Bankman Freed, he was just a couple of islands away from me, right? The same area. Why didn't all these guys that were investigating my bank 
Why didn't they investigate Sam Bankman Freed over at FTX? Because that guy had the opposite political opinion of me. He was out there virtue signaling, talking about global warming and, 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 and all the, the buzzwords that were important. And he was lavishing all kinds of money on all these Democrats. I didn't give a nickel to any of these Democrats, right? I didn't, I didn't pay these people off. So he was a good guy because he was a major donor to the good guys, to the Democrats who cared. And of course, he cared, right? He was out there saying, I don't want to make any money. No, I'm earning to give. Right. That's the only reason I want to make money so I can give it all away. Right. I, you know, so I'm an unabashed capitalist. I don't apologize for capitalism. I don't apologize for making money. Right? I think we all have. That's it. That's our, our our birthright. That's the pursuit of happiness. How do you pursue happiness? you got to make some money right? To, to buy the things that make you happy. Now, there are some things that you don't have to buy to make you happy. But most of us. The things that we want, right? We gotta we gotta earn the money to pay for them. And even if it's not, if we just want to put food on the table, you gotta earn that too, right? In a in a real economy, you wanna eat, you gotta go out there and you gotta either you gotta kill something or you gotta earn enough money to pay somebody to kill it for you. But you gotta eat, right? You know, you need a roof over your house. So either you build the house yourself or you get a job and you earn some money and you pay somebody else to build it. Build it. So I, you know, I don't apologize for this. So I got targeted because of my beliefs. And the IRS and the other agents that were investigating my bank were pissed off because they couldn't find that we did anything wrong. You know, the, the lawyer that we had, that we initially engaged out in Sacramento, who was working with the, the grand jury that was contrived to investigate my bank, I think under a pretense, they needed some excuse. So they came up with this grand jury. And, you know, they were subpoenaing us. We kept giving them all these records, right? And, and so they're looking over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of documents. And the lawyers tell me they're getting pissed off because you guys are doing such a good job. Every time they start to investigate an account, the next thing you know, you've shut it down. Your bank has closed it. And it was frustrating because, like, we tied all these loose ends so quickly. There was nothing there. And so they were very frustrated that they couldn't find anything wrong, right? But why did they think? There was something wrong to be found because everything they've said they've made up. You know, like, like I know from the 60 Minutes that they said, well, Peter Schiff, you advertised your bank to money launderers and tax evaders. No, we didn't. We never advertised it at all. In fact, you know, my, my picture wasn't even on the website. It was there for the first couple of years. We took it off. Early on, we talked about secrecy, but then we got rid of it. We never marketed secrecy. You know, these guys on 60 Minutes, they claimed, they claimed as a fact in their, you know, rebuttal, right? They said that we advertised, the Euro Pacific Bank advertised that you can open up an account in one minute. That's what they claim we advertised, one minute, and that there was no paperwork. It took one to three weeks to open an account if you could get it, because 75% of the people who applied never got approved. So only, only at 25%. Right. Most colleges, you know, admit a lot more than 25 percent uh, of their applicants. But it took one to three weeks to get approved. And, and, and they said that we didn't require documents. Not only did we require extensive documents, but they had to be notarized and they had to be a certified. It, and you had a personal interview. Every single person that opened up an account with a bank, assuming they could supply all the documents notarized uh, and uh, certified that we needed. 
Then they had a personal interview. And we asked them all sorts of questions. And, you know, there were like maybe like a dozen categories that we wouldn't even accept accounts. No crypto, no cannabis, no gambling, no sex, no politically exposed people, no charities. There was a long list. If, you, if your business had anything to do with any of these things, you couldn't even apply. We would just shut you down. Why were we doing that? To minimize the odds that somebody would use the bank for money laundering or tax evasion. It's not that everybody in gambling or in sex was laundering money or evading taxes, but those industries had a higher probability of that happening. And so we shut them down completely because we wanted to make sure that we didn't have any tax there. So there was no reason, given what we were doing, how we were marketing the bank, there was no reason to be suspicious of the bank. There was no reason for five governments, not just the United States, Australia, right? the UK, Canada. Why were these governments all interested in my bank? Because they're all a bunch of socialist governments. They all believe in big government, and I don't. I believe in small government. I believe in individual liberty, not collectivism, not statism. And so they regarded me as a threat. And so they wanted to extinguish that threat by going after my bank because they have the ability to do it because it's regulated, right? And the regulators can put you through the rigor. They can abuse their power to go after a political adversary, me, and to discredit my perspective, right? Because if they could have shown that I was a criminal, if they could have walked me away of hand in handcuffs, that would be great. Hey, here's this guy. He said he was a free market libertarian, but look, he's just a con man. He's just a crook, right? Here he is going to jail, right? That's what they wanted to do. They couldn't do that because they found absolutely no evidence to cooperate any of this, but they don't even care because you know what? They destroyed the bank anyway. Bank's gone, right? No more fully reserved bank. Think of the past, right? They've discredited me. I go online. You know, a lot of people use the bank shutdown against me. You know, you, you, you know, who are you? You're, you can't criticize banking or these regulations. Look, you ran a bank into the ground. Your bank got shut down. You know, people say I was running a Ponzi scheme, right? They were able to tarnish my reputation by unfairly going after my bank. And what else enabled the government to do this? The media, the bias in the media. And the same thing happens. Look at the way the media is covering uh, the, the Durham report or the whistleblowers. Same way, it's the same way they, they, they covered uh, uh, the allegations originally against Hillary Clinton or uh, Hunter Biden, right? They're not reporting the news. They are protecting their friends. That's what the media is. It's all fake news. None of it is in the tradition of the fourth estate where the media is the watchdog to help protect the people. The media is now there to protect the government from the people, to prevent the people from uncovering the truth of government and to allow the government to get away with breaking the law. And again, the best example that I know is what I have experienced and what I continue to experience in my actual life that I can talk about. Because again, right, when 60 Minutes came out and falsely accused me of using my bank, right, to help organize criminals, launder money, and evade taxes, right? I was working with the, the lowest of the low, right? The, the, drug, the drug traffickers, right? Like the mafia, right? Organized criminals, right? 
gangsters, right? Those were my buddies, right? I, I had no scruples. I had no morals, right? I was just, I just wanted to make a buck. And I was helping all these criminals uh, perpetuate their crimes and get away with it, right? So when they accuse me of this, there's all these articles written about it. When they finally have to admit in court after two years of denial that they had no evidence at all that I did anything wrong. And they made these allegations with nothing to back it up. There's been two articles about it, both of them in Australia, right? No articles outside of Australia. Hell, the New York Times wrote a story, right, about, about the false allegations. You know, crickets from the Times now when the allegations turned out to have been completely false. They had no problem in alerting everybody that the allegations had been made but they feel no obligation to let their readers know, oh, by the way, it turned out that they were completely false, that the, the news organization in Australia that made those allegations just made them up and they had, they had no proof. So you got these two newspapers in Australia and you can't even get them on the internet because they're behind a paywall. How many people subscribe to Lawyerly, right? Who the hell, I'm sure hardly anybody in Australia reads Lawyerly, that's one of them. And then there's one other tiny newspaper in Australia, like the Daily Australian, and it's, again, it's behind a paywall. None of the major uh, publications, even in Australia, are reporting that this major company just completely made up a story, lied about it. I get, I get nothing in the media. And, of course, nothing outside of Australia, nothing in the U.K., nothing in Canada, nothing, nothing anywhere. And remember, too, all these Internet sites, I mean, all the, not Internet, um, a crypto, right? All these crypto uh, uh, websites. They seized on this. They were loving this. Oh, my God, this guy that is anti-Bitcoin, it turns out he's a criminal. He's, you know, he's helping criminals launder money, and they use that to discredit me and my negative views on Bitcoin. It was all over the place. These guys were dancing a jig right, because of this, right? Well, now that it turns out that none of it was true, none of those, none of those uh, websites are, are reporting that. No, no, it's, it's all kept quiet. It's all under the dark because it doesn't fit the narrative that they want, right? The Bitcoin guys want to discredit me. Uh, but more important than that, the mainstream media, the left media wanted to discredit me. So they were happy to report the false allegations, but they completely want to cover up the truth when it turns out that those allegations were false. So I'm going to continue to talk about my progress in my case and what's happening because to me, it is the best way to validate this narrative of the weaponization of government, of the abuse of power, and the, the unholy alliance between corrupt government and a biased media. Right? This is something that freedom-loving people should oppose all over the world, even if you're on the left. But I have firsthand knowledge of what's happening, and I think that is the best way that I can get the message out, which is relating the, the, the stories that I know for a fact, right? This is firsthand information. I'm not getting it second and third hand. I lived it, I experienced it, and I am sharing it with my audience. Anyway, that's it for today. Remember, I'm doing a Q&A right after this. So if you're a premium member, I'll see you in a, in a few minutes. If you're not, there's time to sign up. And you know, there's a lot of people that have joined I see I have three or four times as many locals uh, members as I have premium. If you're on locals and, you, and you're not paying your five bucks a month, you're not getting to participate in the Q&A. So give it a try for a month. If you don't like it, you know, then don't pay the five bucks again. 
for the second month. But I think the people who have been paying have been paying for a long time. And, and so I think they're getting value for the money. Anyway, that's it for tonight. And I will be back again uh, next time from Connecticut.